Dr. Crawford Loritz is a nationally known speaker, author, and senior pastor of Fellowship Bible Church in Roswell, Georgia. Uh, he has helped to establish churches in Texas, Mississippi, and also served as the associate director of Campus Crusade for Christ, now known as Crew. Dr. Loritz also hosts, this is the best part for me, Living a Legacy radio show that's featured right here on Bot Radio Network. Dr. Loritz, welcome to... Wow, I'm just delighted to be with you, and thank you, Bot Radio. I appreciate all that you do to help us advance what God's placed on our hearts. MLK 50, Gospel Reflections from the Mountaintop. We are at a conference. This is program is being recorded here is in the heat and the moment of this conference. Yeah. We're here together. What does this mean for you to be here today? Well, it's, it's hard to put in words what it means. I mean, I came of age in 1968. I was 18 years old when uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was uh, assassinated right here in Memphis where we're recording this uh, program. And uh, uh, it was, you know, there, there are all kinds of feelings that I have here. One is flashback to all that happened and where we've been as a country and a nation and what Dr. King stood for. Uh, the other side is is also uh, the central focus of this event, which centers on the gospel and uh, and how the cross is central to reconciliation and central to justice and righteousness. And, and so it's been a wonderful time of remembering a little bit of sadness, celebration, and hope. I think hope is what I'm feeling here in this place. And one of the exciting things is I first signed up and, and got my credentials mm-hmm. to walk around. It's seeing all the young people. Oh, yes. I mean, I feel like yeah. I'm an old fuddy-duddy here, you know? <laughs> I mean, there are so much young energy in this place, close to 4,000 in yeah, attendance. absolutely. And there is, there is a ton of young people here, and, I, and, and it's, it's thrilling to me. But, you know, the, 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 the hope that we're experiencing here is not, um, I don't know how to put it, it's it's not a disingenuous hope or a rudderless hope or a speculative hope. It's an honest hope. And all of the speakers have spoken forthrightly and directly to the sin of racism that still exists, but they've also pointed to the central place of the cross and that the hope of the transforming power of God, if we will respond to him, yes. uh, we can tap into the power that we need to overcome. I think you said the key word, the hope of the gospel, because that's where it all really comes together. I was just thinking about, we've got the privilege of hearing from some history makers and people in the movement. Dr. John Perkins, yes. for example, 87 years old, is a young, I think in his 20s, disenfranchised yes. because of being black. I mean, he bore the marks. I mean, yeah. Yeah. He was beaten, moved to California, but he heard the gospel through his child. Yes. And that's really what kind of focused his ministry. He came back to Jackson, Mississippi, started a ministry called Voice of Calvary. Yes. No telling how much work because of the infusion of the gospel. Yeah, John Perkins is the visible expression and illustration of what we're talking about in terms of the hope of the gospel. It, it wasn't cheap. He, he was beaten to the point of death. John does not mince his words when it comes to justice and the sin of racism. And at the same time, he expresses the hope of reconciliation. And his life is a living testament of what that hope means. It wasn't cheap. He was beaten to the point of death. He saw his own brother killed by white policemen simply because they said he was talking too loud. And so, and yet the refusal to hate and the desire to, to, to be uh, an instrument in God's hands 
to see the visible representation of what the gospel can do in addressing these issues. I mean, it's absolutely wonderful, and that's what this conference has been about. You mentioned that you were 18 years old when you got the news that Dr. King had been assassinated. I was six years old, living here in Memphis at the time. I was hoping you were not that much younger than me. (laughs) (laughs) But I I remember as a child, there was a lot of confusion Mm -hmm. because I didn't understand totally what was happening, Mm -hmm. you know. I remember going to stores with my mom and seeing the water fountain for whites and a separate mm-hmm. water fountain for blacks. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't understand why mm-hmm. that was. I remember growing up, Dr. Loritz, because I had come up through public school that was segregated, mm-hmm. but I always wanted a black friend. Yeah. I remember the first time I went to summer school where there was no separation. I had my first black friend, Charles. Yeah. It was an, an incredible experience to meet somebody that didn't look like me, yeah. but was just as excited about life. We were just kids, you know, yeah. but I honestly remember wanting that experience. Yes. I think that's one of the things somebody said in one of the sessions yesterday is being intentional to build friendships yes. with people who don't look like you. Exactly. I think sometimes we get too scientific and too strategic for our own good about solving these issues. Now, don't get me wrong. I think on a macro level, certainly there's room for strategy in this. How do we do this? But I, I think it's, it's not as complicated as we make it out to be. It is courageously developing relationships and friendships with people who are different than we are, allowing them to speak into our lives. And out of that love relationship, you'll find barriers and and defenses beginning to come down, and our hearts and lives are changed. Love has a way of putting us on the path of transformation. Personally, can you recall any particular memories of racial discrimination against you, against your family, and how did your parents teach you to respond to events like that? Well, I can give you, we could be here for a long time. Of course, I've experienced that. I mean, I've got a little mileage on me right now. And uh, and I think it's just a part of the fall in nature. And, and, and regrettably, it's a part of, uh, of, you know, where we are as a culture. Uh, one of the things that our, my parents taught us that I'm grateful for, because they knew sooner or later somebody's going to drop the N-word on us. And uh, I have two older sisters and myself. But, but they repeatedly told us, looked us in the eye and said, look, it's not what they call you. It's what you answer to. You just need to understand that nobody can take your dignity from you. They can't give it to you. Your dignity comes from the image of God. And that is affirmed. And so I think it was that sense of I, I, I blessed the Lord for my family because now did it sting? Sure. I mean, I was a grown man and somebody hit my car. This back uh, in the 90s. I mean hit my car going at 50, 60 miles per hour. I could, I, 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 you know, by the grace of God, I, I'm alive. And I get out of the car, and the, and the guy's screaming at me, and he calls me the N-word and the black SOB and all these other things. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, that's all I am. You don't know me from Adam's house cat. You don't know anything about me, and you almost killed me. You hit my car, and you're going to turn around and call me all these nasty names? And uh, I remember thinking, this is my response. Yeah, to white folks, I'm just another dumb, you know, N-word. That's all I am. But then the Lord reminded me, no, 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 you've got great relationships. And I began to think about my friends uh, who are white, Josh McDowell and Dennis Rainey and all these other Bill Bright. Bill Bright. All these folks were close to me. That ain't true. And this is the power of relationships. Relationships and love 
have a tendency to pull you back from generalizations. And I was able to put that in perspective and say, no, that's 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 homeboy's issue. That's not everybody's issue. Yeah. Well, since 2005, you've been a senior pastor of Fellowship Bible Church mm-hmm. in Roswell, as I mentioned, a predominantly white congregation. How did you first learn about this position and what was the initial transition into the position like for you and your family? Well, we need to push the rewind button a little bit. I mean, people have made a... Um a really a big deal out of me being the pastor of a predominantly white church in the South. And I suppose in some, I, I, I don't, I mean, yeah, it is, it is pretty significant if you want to talk about that, but it's, you know, it's all a part of God's sovereign foundations in my life. I, I was born and raised in Newark, New Jersey in the fifties in a neighborhood, believe it or not, that was, that was multi-ethnic. It was a working class neighborhood. I went to, went to school and played ball with John San Giovanni and Rocco Bonavice, as well as Gerald Adams and Lloyd Cotton and these guys. And, and, uh, and so I never, I, I grew up in a, in a world that uh, there was relationships and interactions across color lines. And in my home, I had the stories of my great-grandfather, Peter, who was a slave. I knew who I was and, and all of that. So I'm not saying it was an ideal childhood, but for whatever reason, in God's sovereign providence, and I, I grew up in that situation. So fast forward, I never, I never felt as if I had to choose who my friends should be. So, you know, uh, uh, the way I found out about Fellowship Bible Church, I knew about the church, uh, fast forward, and uh, I knew about the church, and I knew about some of the people there, and uh, uh, one of the guys that was on the search committee was a friend of mine. Actually, he's the CEO of a company that I was supposed to be speaking for, their, uh, their, uh, a company event with their, their, their employees and leaders, and I thought he was calling me about that. But uh, he was calling me about that near the end of the conversation. He started hemming and hawing, which is not characteristic of him. I said, well, what's up? And he told me, he said, look, I don't know if you'd be interested in this or not. And he mentioned about the church. And and God had been doing some things in my heart. Uh, 27 wonderful years of Campus Crusade, wonderful. Uh, Didn't leave because I was angry, upset, or anything like that. But I just sensed that I needed to be a better steward of the preaching and teaching. Uh, gifts that God had given to me, and the opportunity to shepherd people's hearts. And so that's how the, all that came about. That's a great story. Uh, your son, Brian, is also a pastor. Your son, yes. Brendan, is a pastor. That's I, right. I know, actually, I used to produce for many years when Brian was here in Memphis, pastoring Fellowship uh, Memphis. Yeah. He had a radio show, Bridge for Life, and yeah. I produced his show for many years. Oh, my goodness. And I miss him being here in Memphis. And I had a chance, when we put a pastor's event on in Nashville, I met on a couple of occasions your son, Brendan, yes, where yeah. he pastors. Yes. And I've met Heather, your daughter. Yes. And Holly, I have not met. Yeah, Holly's up in Michigan. Yeah. She and her husband are both physicians up okay. there. Yeah. So, you know. I haven't met Holly yet. But I remember a story that Brian shared back when he was in college. He talked about his white Christian roommate that called him the N-word. Yes. Uh, Did he seek advice from you through that period? Uh, Yeah, he was a little angry about that, obviously. And uh, that's not all he did. Uh, This young man did some things. And and so, you know, obviously I I said to Brian what— what his grandfather told me, and I had raised the boys the same way. So it's not what they call you, what you answer to. And so you don't let them determine your responses by their ignorance. And uh, so we had those conversations there. And uh, I, I'll share this now. Uh, I didn't tell him this then. Uh, the president of the school was a friend of mine. And I picked up the phone and called him and said, hey, man, what's going on here? This needs to be taken care of. But uh, um, 
Now, I didn't tell Brian that then because, you know, he didn't like his dad interfering with his uh, sure. <laughs> his issues. So I think the, I think the statutes of limitations is run out on that one. So. <laughs> well, I mean, the fact that he came here to Memphis, I mean, the whole yeah. idea of John Bryson and the vision yes, between yeah, these yeah, two, yeah. the chemistry that came together to create a, a multi-ethnic, multi-race congregation, yeah. which is thriving in our city yes, today, yeah, you yeah. know. And well, both my sons, I mean, it's amazing. I never tried to steer them in that direction at all in the ministry. And, but all three of us, for whatever reason, God has called us to to live out ministry and lives that reflect uh, uh, a multi-ethnic emphasis. And uh, we're just grateful to God for that. Dr. Loritz, what are some ways you believe the church can build better race relations in their communities? I mean, we're here talking about this. One of the things that came up yesterday was strategy. And, you know, it's easy to talk about we need to do better as a church. What are some real specific strategies that we can really come together on and see happen, make a difference? Well, I think uh, there's there's something before strategy that needs to take place. Strategy in and of itself is not sustainable unless there's a holy why and a holy what behind it. I think we need to we need to revisit what we really believe about the Great Commission and the nature of the church, what the Bible actually teaches about that. For example, the, we, we so often quote Matthew 28, 18 through 20, but the term uh, make disciples of all the nations, the word nations, there's ethnos, meaning peoples. And so I argue theologically from the very beginning, uh, the, the, the Great Commission is lodged in a multi-ethnic expression. Jesus died for the world, and so our hearts need to be sensitive uh, re- regarding that. So I think and the, other, the other thing is, is that um, uh, even though our churches may be in communities that are not ethnically diverse, and I don't think we need to feel guilty about that. People need to be reached where they are. At the same time, I think the church should have a consciousness and a relationship with people who are different than they are because it expresses the true meaning of the Great Commission and God's heart for the world, and that the church is to be a visible representation of what heaven looks like. And that, that's not just aspirational, that's reality. And Paul built his ministry around that. So I think it begins with right thinking about our theology. And I just think we've gotten too pragmatic and too hyper-individualistic in our approach to Christianity that's caused us to end up at the wrong place. Yes. And so I think it's that thinking. The other thing is, and I think you, you said this earlier, I think the entry level is is you start doing life with people who are different than you. It's, you know, you can have, you can have uh, black folks, Hispanic folks, and white folks all together sitting in a church, and that not necessarily be authentically multi-ethnic. It's not who sits next to you. It's who you have at your dinner table and your lunch table and, and who, you, who you pray with and who you interact with, who you open up your heart to. Yes. And I think it's intentionally taking those steps to develop those relationships. And then I think thirdly is common vision. What can we do together with the resources that God's given to us to address the issues of poverty or opportunities with education or all these other things around us uh, so that so that our righteousness, as my young friend uh, Charlie Date says, that our righteousness expresses itself in justice. The two are related. 
And, uh, and so I think you need to dream together about what, what can take place. I was deeply moved by the panel yesterday here at this conference with uh, the various Memphis pastors that represent this alliance that they've created and what, what's taken place. These brothers pray together, they love each other, and they're doing something. And so it doesn't take rocket science. It takes intentionality. There was about a couple years ago, there was about 125 pastors that came together for what was called a Healing Wounded Hearts conference. Wow. Two days. I got to be a part of one of the days, but basically uh, Rufus Smith, who pastors the Hope Presbyterian Church, my pastor, Pastor Chris Connolly at High Point Church, our great friends, came together, organized this event. Mm -hmm. It was such a sobering time for me. We actually went to a lynching site. An historical lynching site, had a time of reflection, heard the story. I didn't realize how vicious and evil these events were. And how recent they've been. I mean, you you just stop and think. These lynchings took place up through the 40s and early 50s. I was born February 11th, 1950. You know, so... The, but the, one of, the, the other thing is, is that we, we, don't, we don't expose ourselves to what's going on. I mean, I, I think that one of the reasons why I think sometimes African-American Christian leaders get a little frustrated and exhausted, frankly, with the constant re-education is that, you know, the education and the information and, and all this stuff is right at our fingertips. And so we, we Google everything else, how to put together a bassinet and, you know, how to, how to, how to change my oil in a, in, in, in a car and this kind of thing. Yeah. The information on what has happened is right at our finger, fingertips. And so there's no excuse for not being educated. Yes. Uh, what we need is the education and the relationship, falling our faces before God, asking God, what, is, what does he want us to do? Stop thinking that, that somehow or another change is going to come by, by someone, whoever's in the White House or this kind of thing, and begin to really embrace the fact that God only has one option for the hope of the world. That's his son expressed through his body. And once we begin to get there, we'll do what you did. We'll, 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 we'll start relating to these other people. We start speaking to these issues. We start asking God to sensitize our hearts. Yes. And we're going to see an outpouring of the Spirit of God. I confessed to my listeners to this program a while back. Sadly, the first time I ever read I Have a Dream speech was in the last six months. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And honestly, when I read it at my desk, because I was preparing for a radio interview, mm-hmm. and I wanted to read it. And I, when I did, I, I sat there and wept. Oh, and I just want to kind of go over mm-hmm. one of the portions of this famous speech from Dr. King. You know, what's beautiful to me is to see all of these ministers of the gospel. It's a marvelous picture. Who is it that is supposed to articulate the longings and aspirations of the people more than the preacher? Somewhere the preacher must have a kind of fire shut up in his bones, and whenever injustice is around, he must tell it. Somehow the preacher must be as Amos, who said, when God speaks, who can but prophesy? And again with Amos, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Somehow the preacher must say with Jesus, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. He has anointed me to deal with the problems of the poor. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it, yeah. They, I, Dr. Loritz, I just saw a man crying out for, for justice, for equality, obviously, but just give me your ear. I'm, I have a voice here. I'm a, I'm a human. Yes. And, and yes. I just, and it just, I just literally wept just thinking about the desperation yeah. was behind all of this. Yeah, you know, uh, Dr. King put his finger on the two dimensions of pastoring. And I think we only we, we celebrate one dimension of pastoring. We train these young men how to shepherd their church, how to lead within the context of their church. But there are two roles that we have as pastors. Pastors are shepherds and prophets, and meaning that we, we lead and minister to our people, but we also lead the church to minister and impact the world. And it's that second part that we have we have shrunk back from we have failed now we might be missional in terms of missionary in terms of those kinds of things but how does the gospel relate to the context in which our people live Mm. and the suffering around what responsibility do we have to the to the communities around us Uh, what does the gospel offer in terms of hope to some of these moral dilemmas? And uh, and so I I think that we we need to have a little bit of a wake-up call and a a, a re-envisioning of what it really means to shepherd and pastor and lead God's people. You know, something else that I've been thinking about lately, uh, David Barton, you know, is a great historian, and uh, he has a program with wall builders and Mm -hmm. outreach. Mm -hmm. And I was listening to one of his feeds recently, and we was during the Black History Month. One of the things he brought up was that, you know, usually when we talk about Black History Month, go back to the Civil Rights Movement, we talk about Dr. King, but there's so much rich history and intentional participation in the creation of this country by black Americans that gets overlooked in history. We don't yes, hear their stories. Yes, yes. He started telling about these people that fought in the Revolutionary yes. War and laid their lives down. Their blood was shed for the founding of this country. And all of these great men and women, too, is such a rich history that we're, yeah. we're not getting educated. We're not no, being we're told not. about. And, and the truth of the matter is, you know, in, in my mind, it, I, I would long to see the day in which uh, we, we would not have to have a Black History Month in this regard, yes. that, that all of our history is so well represented that it is the history of all of Americans. And I just got finished reading uh, Chernow's masterpiece on Grant. It's a little less than a thousand pages. And, uh, you know, I was, I was, uh, I got an education in terms of Ulysses S. Grant and, and uh, his passion for, for the slaves and freed African Americans. And, and I, I did not appreciate the depth of his commitment to, to disenfranchised people and this kind of thing. Well, all of this history has been, has been lost on us. And uh, there's been the tendency of the dominant culture to sort of reflect sort of, uh, you know, the Western European flavor of the American pilgrimage yes. rather than realizing, no, 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 we've got to deal with everything and everyone that's in this nation. Yeah, and it's, we could put it back in our classrooms. Yes. I mean, because we look at role models for urban youth. These are kind of the men and women. I was trying to think, this name slips my mind, the one that helped design the streets for our capital in Washington, D.C. Well, he yeah. was, he yeah, was a yeah. self-taught mathematician who basically at one time somebody handed him, a friend handed him a pocket watch 
don't know if you heard the story. Yeah. He took the pocket watch, looked at it, took it apart, went home and created a replica out of wood that actually worked and kept time <laughs> up until one minute a year. I mean, you know, and so these are the kind of, you know, the mentors Absolutely. and the, yeah. the ones that our kids need to be looking to yeah. for dreams. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the celebration of human dignity, and that's what it's really all about, you know. So, Living a Legacy is heard here on Bot Radio Network. Tell me about this program. What does it mean for you to have this radio outreach? Well, it's just wonderful. It's an opportunity to minister to people. We we have two radio national radio programs: this uh, Legacy Moments, which yes. is a daily short feature, and it just gives an opportunity to take about two minutes and uh, uh, focus on a spiritual principle from a passage of scripture and. I usually sign off by, here's what I want you to remember today, and it crystallizes that. And then there's a weekend program called Legacy, uh, uh, Living a Legacy itself, and it's a half-an-hour program, actually 28 minutes or whatever they call it. It's uh, <laughs> messages from the church uh, that I've given, and uh, and it's a blessing to see how God uses that to speak to the hearts of people. And I'm grateful for Bot Radio. I mean, you guys are doing a great job, and... Um, Christian radio has a way of just ministering to people and capturing them wherever they are, whether they're driving or, you know, someone's home listening uh, over the Internet or just speaks to their hearts. And I, I'm, I'm a fan. I mean, I'm in my car listening, and I can't tell you the number of times that I've heard a Bible teacher, somebody say something the Lord uses just, just to speak to me that day with something that I'm going through. So well, thank you. Good word. You and your wife, Karen, as we mentioned, have four children. Yeah. You got a few grandchildren, too. Yeah, I got 11 of them. 11, so, I, was, yeah, yeah. I was going to say 10, but there's another one. Yeah, there. yeah, yeah. Uh, we got to update that. Hendrix has just turned 11, uh, just turned a, a year old here. So it's uh, they're they're wonderful. In fact, I, I only half jokingly say the only reason my children exist is for transportation for our grandkids. <laughs> <laughs> As we close out, Dr. Larissa, when you think of leaving a legacy for those 11 grandchildren, what do you think about Wow. You know, my wife and I just finished a manuscript, just uh, in fact, a book that uh, we co-authored on marriage and how marriage affects future generations. And we dedicated that book to our grandchildren. Um, You know, it's Psalm 78 verses 5 through 7 is what we really want is that, uh, you know, God established a testimony and appointed a law that the next generation should obey it, walk in it, live it. And that's what we want. We want them to be. We want them to uh, live lives that reflect the character of God and the content of Scripture. Amen. Can't argue Amen. with that. No. <laughs> God bless you, my dear brother. Thank you for Thank what you. you're doing for Christ's kingdom. Thank well, you for welcome. this time. Thank you. This has been a joy. Well, friends, as we wrap up here at MLK 50, Gospel Reflections from the Mountaintop, our guest, Dr. Crawford Loritz, heard here on Bot Radio Network with Living a Legacy. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Byron Tyler. We'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.